Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bow. Oh, Aaron. Oh, sorry, dude. All right. Well, my restart. throat is like I've had like I think I, I might have developed allergies. Uh-oh. So my throat has been scratchy. I've had like a stuffy nose. So <clears throat> all right, we'll do it again. So my throat is just dry. That's why I've been trying to drink a lot of water while we're talking. Hey, it's smart. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, Church. And if you're wondering why Evan was so smiley when he was greeting you, it's because I held the water in my mouth prior to him starting talking just to give the ah in the background. Just to make it happen. uh, If you're listening along with us, thank you again for joining back in with us. If this is your first time, glad you're listening and tuning in for the first time. Uh, We really like to have a little bit of fun in our bantering back and forth because we really do enjoy talking about the Bible, specifically the reading plan. Um, And maybe there's questions that come along in your mind as you're as you're listening along with us or maybe even as you're reading scripture um, and you want someone to take some time to answer it uh, we would love to do that for you uh, you can send those questions to us directly via email uh, the email address is infogrove.church make sure to put in the subject line uh, a podcast question or you can direct message us on the Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. You're welcome to DM us there as well. Uh, we will take some time as much as we can week over week at the end of every episode to answer some of those questions. And we've got one today and we've got a fun one for you next week. So yeah. uh, keep sending those questions in. Did I ever tell you about we had a new, so speaking of the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, that we had a new different Grove Church reach out to us? Because no. normally there's, there's, there's one in Arizona that we get a lot and we've had people sign up for the life groups and, and yes. even watch online And then we give weeks. them the address of the life groups and yep. it's like, that's like a 17 hour drive. I'm like, where are you from? Arizona. Yeah, we're not in Arizona. So this week we had a, uh, someone reach out from a Grove church in British Columbia. Hey. And so they were our, asking our about- neighbors up North. They were asking about like our kids camp. And I was like, I gave them the info and like, oh, that doesn't match with what we were talking about. I was like, really? That's interesting. And I looked and I was like, oh, this, this is exactly why here. So- yeah, I, don't know. I feel like when we changed the name to the Grove Church, it wasn't that common of a church name. And now I don't think it was. It's grown on people, apparently. It's grown growing. On ah, I see what you did there. All right, let's talk about Ruth this week, listeners. Enough with the. Uh, Speaking of growing. Enough with this uh, talking about church names. Um, so we're finally out of Judges. And I say finally Which because. Which is kind of sad. I, it is a little bit. But. Judges does this, it's, it, it does this really helpful thing where it starts off really good and kind of uplifting. You're like, oh, this is nice. And then by the time you get to the end, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to be done with these, these clowns. Let's move on. Well, we got to be clear for a second. We're out of the book of Judges into a book of Ruth, but we will have uh, an intro to the final judge. That's in just a little bit, just saying. Good old, good old Samuel. Um, Spoiler. but spoilers, I know. Listen, that was the first time I got to like lead into a, a book that I'm breaking down. Come Sorry. on, man. So the the book of Ruth is a really helpful bridge between the books of Judges and Samuel. Um, and specifically because it takes place during the reign of the judges. Um and we get this love story that plays out, which is really nice coming out of, you know, chapter 19, which is just the worst. Um, and after like the almost genocide of the tribe of Benjamin, um, we see this love story happen. And then out of that love comes someone who the book of Samuel is going to be really concerned with. That one we'll leave for, we'll leave for later. So we'll see what happens there, listeners. I don't know what you were leading to there. Um, so <laughs> it's also, yeah, like I said, it's just also a really nice change of pace from the depravity of the end of Judges. Um, and it's essentially... Yeah, it's just a really up- uplifting story. It's essentially a romantic comedy, um, and I mean that in the proper sense of the term. So not like it's ha ha funny, but like the comedic structure of a story is something starts off good, and then it goes really bad, and then it ends good in okay, a romantic. Pause for a second. 
And when he says proper sense, the proper term, he's yeah, actually referring proper. to like Shakespearean romantics or comedies or whatever. That's just story not like Not like our realistic rom-coms, okay? Uh, so when you say proper sense, you've got to understand the times have changed. We're not 80 years old, um, <laughs> which is like your soul. Uh, but not that you're hard-hearted. But so I just want to provide clarity for our, our dear I, listeners because not everybody understands literary structure like you do. Okay? I, for one, they're a lot not, like me. I will not stand by and watch our beloved English language just devolve into nothingness. Don't make me start rebuttaling you, bro. So, um, so that was for Kathy, wherever she's at. Um, you love me, Kathy. Anyway, sorry. Well, we're sorry, listeners. We're getting way off the rails today. That's what happens when we have a great conversation prior to the podcast yep. recording. So, anyways, so back it, to Ruth. It has a comedic story structure as opposed to a tragic story structure is what I was getting at. And then obviously it's a romantic one because we're seeing a love story play out. And also it's kind of interesting because we're seeing it play out mostly through the eyes of uh, Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law. So we'll get to that. But she's kind of... She's the point of view character, even though Ruth is the protagonist of the story. We're kind of seeing it all happen through Naomi. So, and anyway, so enough with that. Uh, so, chapter one, we're going to actually jump into the story here. Uh, we're introduced to the family of Elimelech. Um, and if you think that name's hard to pronounce, that's okay because he's not going to be work. around for long. Uh, his wife, Naomi, and their sons, Malon. And I'm going to go Killian here. It could be Chilion. Um, I've heard both. And so. This week, I'm really trying to pronounce all the names correctly, listeners, in case you didn't notice. Uh, but they are from Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. And so Bethlehem, that's going to come up. Uh, it's going to come up in a little bit, and then it's really going to come up later in the later in the year, listeners, when we go start going through the Gospels so or go through another Gospel. Uh, and then during a, a period of famine, they pack up and they move to the land of Moab. So Moab, if you'll remember, it's in the southeast. So it's southeast of Israel. It's pretty parallel to Judah. Um, but they move over that way. And, you know, if you, if you remember correctly, Yahweh is not a huge fan of the things that the people of Moab <laughs> have true. been doing. Yeah. So there's the whole, like, and it was brought up, there was a question a couple of weeks ago about, um, there was a, there's a ban on even past 10 generations of the people of Moab mm -hmm. joining in the Lord's assembly. So that came up and that was a whole thing because of, if you remember Balaam, that guy, what a clown, <laughs> but he really starts off this whole hatred of Moab. And then Moab, they, they don't do themselves any favors either. And they eventually, um, I want to say, is that the, um, I'm, I'm, blanking on the name of the minor prophet whose name starts with an O, who... Obadiah. I believe Moab is the country that he is prophesying the downfall of. Don't quote me on that. It could be a different one, but too I, be, late. I believe it's Quoted you happened. on it. Yeah, too late. Anyway, so Elimelech dies shortly after arriving. So he's in the story for all of like five verses and then it's over. Um, and then their sons marry Moabite women. So that's Ruth and Orpah, which is interesting because I originally put in the notes that this was a sin, that they marry Moabite women. Technically, there's not actually a provision against it in the law, which I was really surprised huh, at. But yeah, when I was when I was studying through it, that's not actually explicitly stated. Um, but it's still pretty discouraged. <laughs> like it's it probably wasn't a good idea. Um, but this happens. And so after 10 years, interestingly, childless years for both of them. So neither Ruth nor Orpah have any children during this decade. Uh, but both Malon and Kilion die. And so Naomi takes her two her daughters-in-law to return to Judah. Uh, and then we get this I, I'm going to read this whole thing because I think this, this is one of the most powerful passages of Ruth. And Ruth is, I mean, here, and listeners, you're going to 
know this as I go out. If Job is my favorite book of the Bible, Ruth and Boaz may be my favorite characters in the Bible. His favorite couple. Oh, they're say. just a, they're so they deserve each other in the best way. <laughs> but we're gonna we're just we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna let the story reveal itself. So this is in Ruth uh, chapter one, verse starting in verse eight. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So you get, I'm going to pause there. You get this really tender moment where she's realizing it's it's not, right's the wrong word, but it's it would probably be better for her daughters-in-law to, instead of coming with her and living as this kind in this kind of, as widows in Judah, they can just go back home. They can remarry, yeah. like they can restart their lives. And I love that she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. So clearly they have a really close relationship. This Mm -hmm. isn't like, I don't know, like there's that stereotype of like the mother-in-law never getting along with uh, her daughters-in-law. Like clearly there's a lot of love between in this family. And she says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. Again, this is a very tender moment. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters and go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So I'm going to pause there again. So what she's getting at is, if you're going to go back to Israel, especially back in that day, um, it would have been a really tough pitch to be like, hey, I'm, I'm an older divorced woman any suitors out there? Probably not. Um, and then add to that the fact that they're Moabite women. Is, and that's going to come up later. So it, it's very much, um, Na- yeah, Naomi is looking at this situation. She's she's wanting to do right by her daughters-in-law. And I also love, sometimes Orpah gets a bad rap or because she's about to leave. Um, but um, I think you can tell that Orpah also didn't want to go. Like there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of love in this family. So, uh, and Ruth said, or sorry, and Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Oh, I love Ruth. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth is so great. I might. Oh man, she. I'm. I'm getting. Uh, anyway, sorry, listeners. That's that was an internal thought I just had there. But we're, we'll we'll keep that with just me. Uh, well, well, I think one of the things to, to to reveal here even is you know, and you've alluded to it, and you kind of hinted at it too, is like Ruth or, or sorry, Naomi understands that she's going back to a very impoverished reality. She's not going back to this massive family that she's going to be wealthy and well taken care of. She understands she's going to be a widow for the rest of her life. And she also understands she's not going to be well off. And and she, I mean, you see the the relationship she has with her daughter-in-laws. Um, and there is a deep care and concern yep. for their well-being that they still have plenty of life to live. Um, and so Naomi, it's almost like a, a, I don't want to say it insensitively, but it's almost like a mercy killing. Like, just let me go off and and live my life alone as a widow, as not a, not attached to anybody. 
and go go have a better life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you see, you know, and, and again, there's nothing against Orpa. Like she yeah. she has it's, it's heartbreaking for her, but she understands what Naomi's getting at. But Ruth is 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 showing a, a little bit more depth of character and and what she's revealing because we know more about Ruth because of this. But that's the that's the reality. That's the context that's happening. Yeah, Ruth is. It, it's not that Orpa is a bad person. No, it's not that at all. Ruth is exceptional. Is kind of how yeah, I would describe she, it. She sets the standard. Yep. Uh, so after this, Naomi and Ruth they return to Bethlehem, and Naomi changes her name to Mara, uh, which is it means bitter in Hebrew. Um, which I guess, yeah. I mean, you can even see that where she says it is uh, exceedingly bitter to me that the Lord has done this. So she's has very, gone against her. Yeah, yeah, has gone against her. So and she she even when she gets back and she says, "Do not call me Naomi, uh, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me." So it's she's very. There, there's not much hope. In this story, and obviously we're 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 very early on, so I should say Naomi does not feel much hope, and I would imagine Ruth doesn't either. This is kind of they're not in a great situation. Yeah. Um, eventually, in order to eat, uh, Ruth offers to glean from the fields of a man named Boaz, uh, who was a relative of Naomi. So gleaning, uh, really quick for those of you who don't know, which is probably I mean, who, who among us know, knew what gleaning was before we read the Bible? That's fair. Um, so it was a practice set up in the law specifically for the poor. And what would happen is when you would harvest wheat, you would, you know, you would take off the tops of it, but some of it would naturally fall to the ground. And so in the law, they were commanded, don't bend over and pick up that extra stuff, leave it for the poor. So when the poor come through, um, they will be able to essentially take enough for mm-hmm. themselves. And it reminds me, I was, I was listening to a story of, I think it was a great grandfather of mine, but it was someone during the Great Depression and he did that with his um, with his farm was that he intentionally left areas unharvested so that the hmm. very poor in the in their small town uh, would be able to go through and, and pick things to eat. So it's, it's a weird it, flex, but okay. A weird flex, yeah. So this great-grandfather that's never incredible. met. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always loved that story. It's always stuck with me. And so that's what... It, was, what, it, it reminded me of this. Yeah. So, and Boaz, I just put this in the notes, Boaz is a freaking stud too. So in chapter two, we're introduced to him and it says, and behold... Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to his reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you, which is already, I mean, come on, this guy's cool. Like his, his reapers all like him. Then the then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So Ooh, la, la. yeah, he spies out Fancy. into the fields. He's like, who is, who is that? Uh, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, she is a young Moabite woman. Notice how that's the first thing that he describes about her, uh, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And I'm sure Boaz was like, oh, really? The Moabite woman is from Moab. Thanks for that. That's really helpful, sir. Brilliant. <laughs> what would I do without you, detective? Uh, and she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So that's just to get lazy. At, yeah, she's I'm just kidding. Ruth is, you cannot accuse her of being la- lazy. Uh, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So essentially he's giving her some, he's just giving her really nice treatment. He's saying, hey. A lot of favor. Yeah. Don't worry about going to other fields. Stay here. I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. If you're thirsty, you can drink the same water that the servants are going to be drinking. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, 
all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Um, so I just love that the, the their very first attraction to each other, and specifically Boaz's first attraction, I guess you shouldn't say first because it, he he does spire out from the crowd. Um, but the thing that he loves about her is, is her character. It's a, re- it's a really cool thing. Um, and so Ruth and Boaz, you know, they eventually fall in love. What? And, yep, and let's be honest, they're both really lovable people. Uh, so I, I, I was going to say, what I think is really powerful about this story is that they both look past flaws, and I put flaws in quotes, um, and they get at the character of the person. So while many Israelites look at Ruth and they see a foreign woman, Boaz sees a woman of incredible character. Um, and we know, we find this out later, but Boaz is an older man. And so who knows how... I, who knows how old that exactly is, but we know he he references himself that he is an older man and and, and unmarried. Um, and Def, definitely north of forty, though. Yeah, for, oh for sure, <laughs> so I, I would kidding. guess. <laughs> oh, I see what you're getting. Yeah, we, uh-huh. see, I was funny. That's it. So, listeners, because I'm 38, for, so 40 is getting close. But as to let you in on the inside joke, listeners, we were at a pastors' conference and the there was a talking about the new generation coming up, and the cutoff was 40. So me and Aaron looked at the pastors on staff above 40, and we were like, "Yeah, that's right." We're well, the that wasn't my original thought. I was just 38. I'm gonna be 39 this year, so 40 is the uh, number. I had, gotcha. So. Well, I'm doing but both. That, that fit too. That was funny. Both too. worked. Okay, so who knows? Back to Ruth. So yeah, who knows exactly how old Boaz is, but we know like he's probably not like a desirable bachelor because of his age, but Ruth looks past that and sees a man with great integrity and kindness. So really cool. Uh, so Naomi, she starts to, she's picking up the hints. She's like, cause I, I, I feel like Ruth is coming home and she's got all this extra stuff and she's Naomi, giddy. yeah. And Naomi's like, Hey, what's going on here? And Ruth's like, well, you know, I met this guy, Boaz. He's letting me do a bunch of stuff. And Naomi's You're like, okay. relative Boaz. Yep. So there you go. Uh, and so, yeah, she reminds Ruth that Boaz is a relative and therefore he is in line to be a redeemer for her. What's that? Mean? Exactly. So just like gleaning, redeemer is probably, it's a word that we use all the time in the English language uh, and specifically in Christianity, we talk about how Christ redeemed us, but the actual system of redeemers, it was a way in the Old Testament specifically under under the Old Covenant to make sure that that lines didn't die out and also to make sure that women were taken care of. And so today, like... Today, as a woman, you have a ton of freedom. You can hold most jobs. Like there's, there's a ton of things that you can do. Um, back then, there was just it was a lot of work that was just incapable. And a lot of times, if your husband died and you were young, and especially if you were childless or if your children were very young, you were going to have an incredibly hard time actually making, yeah. um, making ends meet. And so there was a line of relatives whose duty it was. Um, to marry you, and so it's interesting. It sounds really weird, like in, totally in modern in modern. Um, but pull off your modern lenses. Yeah, exactly. Look through the look through the ancient eyes. Essentially, what and, and the other thing too is you would have children with that. Um, so you'd get married, you'd have children, but those children would technically legally be the children of her first husband. And so, like the really famous one would be like if if a man and a woman got married and the man died, his brother could marry that woman and he would have two wives in that situation. But the wives, the children that he had with his brother's wife, and again, this sounds so weird to say, but they would technically be his brother's children and they would carry down his inheritance. They would carry down his family line. And it was a way of making sure um, 
of really honoring the man's brother to make sure that mm-hmm. his line doesn't die out and to make sure that um, his inheritance keeps moving forward. So it's it's again, it's kind of awkward through a modern lens, but I do think it's really beautiful when we're yeah. able to kind of take off that those glasses for a second and just see it for what it was. I think it's a really cool thing that God prepared a way for. Well, and to help us and to help us understand a little bit too, when it, when it talks about when Ruth talks about Boaz being in line to be the redeemer, she it's it's this idea of a kinsman redeemer. So it's not. It's not necessarily, it's familial specifically. So it's within the family line, the family unit. Right. That's the biggest difference. And so when when you read that or see that, understand the context there, because that's really important to understand. And it is, it's a beautiful provision that's made in ancient times to ensure the integrity and the the continuation of, of, a, of a lineage of a, of a family name. So there you go. All right. So Ruth, later on, she, in essence, proposes to Boaz. What? Spe- yeah, so speaking progressive. Of, speaking of really weird customs, like she goes to the threshing floor. Um, at, Boaz is hanging out and sleeping and whatever. Yeah. So like during harvest, I guess you would just sleep in the fields. That was tradition. Just like you're camping out. Yep. And so one of the things that you, you know, in order to propose or I guess to ask someone to be a redeemer, you would like uncover their feet and then like sleep at the foot of where there's, uh, it's a whole, you know, we, this yeah. isn't how we do it today. It's, it's a position thing. Like I'm, I'm laying my life at your discretion. You get to choose what to do with me. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the foot in essence, you're coming under the authority. That's what's happening. So that that picture when she uncovers the feet and lays at his feet, it startles him and freaks him out, which is funny. Yeah. Um, but it's it's I'm I'm placing my life under your authority, and and it's your it's you have the freedom to say yes or no to this. Right. Um, and so that's what that's what that's the picture of what's happening. And in fairness to Boaz, anytime like if I went to sleep by myself and woke up with anyone at my feet, I would still be like, well, ah, okay. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, so Ruth, he wakes up like we just kind of talked about. And after an initial moment of being startled, uh, he happily agrees to be a redeemer. He's like, oh, this is awesome. And you can get, you kind of get the idea that Boaz was kind of hoping against hope that like he didn't think Ruth was interested, but you know, like yep. now that he knows she is, it's, it's, it's oh, this is awesome. All right. So there is one relative yep. ahead of him in the, in the redemption order though. So he has to deal shrewdly with this guy um, and we're not told his name. So Adventures in Odyssey, when I was a kid, they named him Orin, which has always stuck with me, but we're going to call him Phil. So Phil is in, or Bob, (laughs) uh, Phil is in line uh, to redeem Ruth. And so this is what we get in chapter four, starting in verse one. Now Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there. And the gate is where it's where the business is done. It's where councils are happening. Um, if you remember from the book of Job, he would talk about how he would go to the gate and he had the seat of honor there, like when he was um, at his highest. So that's what Boaz is kind of in the similar position. Uh, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz is, you know, he's got it. He's hatching his plan. He's getting a witnesses. He's getting Phil over there. They're going to do their whole thing. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Phil, did you know this? And Phil's like, oh, cool. Oh, I didn't know. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those who are sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. So for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. So he's like, okay, hey, listen, do you know Naomi came back with a bunch of land that belongs to Elimelech? I mean, you're you're in line to redeem that. So I just thought, Phil, because I'm such a nice guy. I just thought I would bring all these elders here and you can buy it right now, just in front of everyone and get this done. And so Phil is excited. He goes, I, I will, I will redeem it. Thanks, Boaz. 
Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also, Phil, you get Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So you can kind of see how... Boaz intentionally builds it up and then rips, like he rips the carpet it's out. It's set up takedown. Exactly. So he's like, oh yeah, this is awesome. Oh, by the way, um, also you have to marry the Moab- that Moabite woman. To carry on our relatives' yeah. name. So. Yeah. So you have to, you know. Good job, it's, bud. It's, it's going to impair your inheritance there, Phil. And Phil's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Exactly. No thanks. So, and I love how in verse seven it says, because you kind of get an idea that this is written a fair a fair amount after the events take place, because it says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So instead of a handshake, you would just swap your sandals. So, I mean. Fancy. Yeah. It's better than an inner thigh covenant. <laughs> that's true. That's happened in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, that's a really weird one. Uh, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native people. You are all witnesses this day. And there was a standing ovation. And like, yeah! I'm just and then the montage at the end of the movie starts playing. Yeah, no, so Boaz, he's... He's uh, he's just a really smart guy. He knows how to get things done, and so he's like, okay, I just gotta I just gotta play Phil right, and then we're gonna be able to be together. It's he's a be shrewd awesome. businessman, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, so, which is true. That's fitting somewhere. Boaz. Yeah, thank you, Boaz. All right. So after that, we just get this little epilogue at the end. So yeah, Ruth and Boaz, they get married, live happily ever after. Naomi goes and she, she starts going by Naomi again, which is nice. Um, and then these are the last few. Well, there's a few verses at the end that's kind of a genealogy because. You know, the the early Jews just couldn't get enough of those. But the ending of the book of Ruth is essentially this. It says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became and she became his wife, and the Lord gave uh sorry, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Which hey, you know, it is. Everyone loves Boaz. Uh he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Which that statement itself, your, your Ruth being worth more than seven sons, it's a really weird metaphor today. Yeah, but it's... Back then, it's a very powerful statement. Very, very high, high, high... <laughs> high praise. High praise, yeah. Uh, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and he and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to, born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Hey. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David? What? Wait a sec. <laughs> well, hey, listeners, we just want to take a moment before we jump into 1 Samuel to <laughs> remind us to, to leave a five-star review if you haven't had a chance yet, just like Knickerbockers. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's a really rough segue. But yes, that, oh, was that was a, awesome. That's a fun way to end the, the book of Ruth, um, but it's a great setup for what's coming in the weeks to come. Uh, but yeah, please leave a review if you haven't done so yet. Maybe you've been part of the the group of people who have said, man, I really need to do that. Consider this your one chance. Just stop right now. Whatever After this, you're doing, it's over. Push pause on, on the podcast. I'll wait. Well, thank you for leaving that five-star review uh, and and leaving a review and even a written one like our, our friend Knickerbocker24 who said this. He titled it lighthearted but meaningful. 
Thank you. We, I try and keep it light. Evan keeps it meaningful. We're a good duo. Uh, but it says this, I just recently started reading the Bible through its entirety for the first time. Well, well done. That's a big feat in and of itself. Way to go. Uh, he said, this podcast has been an awesome resource. Having this podcast while I read through Leviticus and Numbers was so, so helpful. Uh, that's good to know because uh, I wish I would have had a podcast like this to help me work through those two books as well. So, uh, and then he said, I'm excited to continue my journey through the Bible. Uh, that's awesome. I'm glad that we, we have become a resource for you, Knickerbocker, um, and would encourage you uh, to leave a review because what it does, it actually helps the the algorithms and create the, a greater impact and reach uh, to grow a community so people have more access to it. So would love for you to seriously take a moment and highlight, uh, so give us a five-star review and a written review because it helps that reach. So uh, so First Samuel is the book we're jumping into this week. Uh, we are covering the first 15 chapters. And I told Evan on the way down to record this podcast, uh, it's almost unfair to start the book of Samuel and have to introduce it and hit the first 15 chapters because there's so much that happens. Um, so I'm going to do my best to kind of crank through it quickly because we still have another book to get through. So um, so that's what's coming up. I should say also, when we refer to Samuel, you might be wondering why don't we say first and second Samuel? It's because first and second Samuel, first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles were all Sorry, I they are all one one book, right? Exactly. They're all written in one time one, together. They were meant to re- be written together, but and the canonizing of scripture to break it down in easier chunks to be able to read for our modern day. Yeah. Scrolls lines. were only so long, so you divide it up into two. Yeah. But as a story, they're not meant to be. It's not like there's a first Samuel and a second Samuel. Yeah. It's all one long story. And and remember too the the headings, the chapters, and the the verses. All of those breakdowns were given just for reference. True, they weren't actually. Samuel did not create chapter one verses one through whatever. Like it's so it, it's created modern in modern times, not necessarily most recent modern times, but for easy access. Yeah, and chapters are they're mostly helpful, but there are there are a few times, specifically I've noticed in the epistles, where um, I think they kind of they can be a hindrance yes. because we misput where the chapter starts, and so the thoughts yeah. actually bleed through. But yeah, yeah there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of connection in what's written. So. Uh, but First Samuel, uh, it's going to show us what we've just come out of, and uh, not just the Exodus, but God establishing His own people, where they're a group of tribes, uh, to where now we're going to see this centralized monarchy. That's what's happening in the Book of Samuel. They're moving from tribe-driven, judge-driven leadership to now monarchy-driven uh, community and leadership. Um, it begins with, and I said this at the top of our episode today, that begins with the birth of the last judge. Uh, and I put in the notes, but we've already kind of given it away. But can you guess who? Uh, Samuel, because that's the name of the book, um, who's also a prophet. He's also called to be a prophet. Um, Double dip in the titles. Yeah. Hey, you, sometimes you just got to, man. When you've got the mantle, you can do it. Much like uh, Deborah. Yes, exactly. She was a yeah. prophetess and a yeah. judge. And she was before Samuel. So um, so we're going to find in First Samuel, uh, specifically, you're going to find three narrative cycles. Uh, the beauty of, we're going to continue in the narrative fashion. So it's going to be kind of easier to read uh, because it tells more like a story because it's a hit book of history. Um, but we're going to find three narrative cycles. First Samuel is going to cover uh, Samuel and Saul, and then the introduction of David. The majority of David's reign is actually covered in the in the book of Second Samuel, um, and so we're not gonna, we're going to get introduced to David, but not really hear much about his kingship until Second Samuel, where they really dive into that. Um, there's a couple key points of conflict in this book of First Samuel. We're going to see between David, uh, the Israelites, and God as king. Uh, which is right out the gate. We see this. We'll see uh, between the Israelites and the Philistines, which is one of the predominant um, uh, uh, antagonists to God's people, is the people of, of Philistines. And then finally, we're going to see, you know, towards the end of the book, the conflict between David and Saul specifically. Um, and so I've, I'm just going to kind of break it down and kind of work through this book as quickly as I can. I got a few I want to read that are not as uh, 
familiar parts of the narrative, I feel like. Um, and so I'm not really going to dive into a lot of some of the familiar parts or some of the easier parts, because again, it reads like a narrative. So I'm just going to kind of give you that overview. Um, we find in chapter one, you see uh, the birth of, of Samuel it happens um, and it picks off, picks up right where judges left off. Um, so you have the end of the book of judges. As far as how the judges are born, God raises up someone to lead his people, to deliver his people. Uh, we go into the book of Ruth, which is a good uh, kind of pause or, or, or shift for a moment to uh, romantic comedy to allow us a little bit of joy, I think. Uh, and then you see the, the birth of Samuel. Uh, you also see Samuel being dedicated because Hannah uh, couldn't have kids, but she prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered her prayer, so she dedicated him back. And we see in chapter two, we see Hannah's praise for God uh, to, for provision and answer to prayer of having a kid. Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, this is where we, that question came from about the, yep, the double portion. This is, this is that story. So we did jump ahead a little bit there. Yeah. So it actually would have fit better probably in this week, but well, you know, either way. So even as I was reading through, I'm like, oh, we already kind of touched on this. So I don't have to do much reading here. Um, we, we get introduced, reintroduced actually to Eli's sons, who's the, uh, the, the chief priest that right now, um, and his sons are not, they're not the, the, the smartest guys or the best guys. They're some... actually sinful and, and they have a lot of contempt for Yahweh in his, um, in his way. But you see in this, in this chap, second chapter, you see almost this contrast between Eli, Eli, Eli's son, uh, sons and Samuel's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? His, his leadership and his faithfulness to God's I was going to say like way. Eli is kind of reminiscent a little bit of Gideon where he kind of starts strong tapers off towards the end and then his sons are just the worst. Yeah. It's kind of similar to that a little bit. Yeah. Well, and Eli, I mean, Eli, I mean, it continues on, right? He, Eli rebukes his sons because they, in essence, they, they do what God doesn't want them to do. They, they are evoking judgment from God where God gets frustrated with Eli. He gets to a point where he's going to remove God, Eli from the priesthood. He's like, mm. they're not even going to be in the line. Your line's not going to continue uh, because Eli's response to his sons was, was kind of apathetic. It was like a stern scolding, but nothing more than that. There was no actual consequences. No, there was no punishments. And so Eli continues as the high priest, but his sons are still in the priesthood when they should have really been removed. Um, we'll see that all of that in chapter two. Chapter three, we'll see where God calls Samuel as a prophet, which is a really uh, significant time where Samuel is learning how to hear the voice of Lord. And you see this very distinct moment where God speaks directly to Samuel. Um, and this is after Sam Hannah has weaned Samuel from from her and then also giving him back. In essence, she brought Samuel, this was back in the dedication, back to the temple service. Um, and then we see in chapter four, we see this, what I kind of wrote down as like the fulfillment of God's judgment against the house of Eli um, by the hands of the Philistines. Um, and, I, and I put this in here because I think there's been a lot of times that I've read through Old Testament narratives. I've heard of the Philistines, but it's like, I don't really know much about them. And so here's like a quick little blurb about uh, the Egyptians, like these, these were the, a thorn in the flesh of the Israelite people for a long time. Um, throughout Saul's reign, but also David's reign, um, they just keep coming back around. But um, one of the things I didn't realize is they actually were likely among sea people. So they kind of mm -hmm. lived in the sea, lived on the coastlands. Um, they migrated to various parts uh, from various parts of the Mediterranean to the coastlands of Palestine. Uh, modern day Palestine is what we would understand that. Um, they, they arrived about the same time as Israel, the Israelites. So there's just going to be this competitiveness where they want to take over land. Um, they were in fierce battles where they defeated the Hittites, which was really interesting. I don't know these other two tribes, the Ugaritics uh, and the Amaru kingdoms. I don't know much about them. I've heard um, the names, but I can't. But they defeated here. them as well. And they also defeated the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians were not their powerhouse. Uh, nation as they once were in their prime before God wiped them out with the Red Sea. Uh, but they also defeated the Israelites as well. Um, and so by the time Samuel had already 
by the time Samuel had arisen, they'd already claimed a few coastal cities and were continuing to push eastward to conquer the Israelite territory. Um, so the Israelites in chapter four, we're going to see they fight against the Philistines. It's not going well. So they call for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to the battlefield. Eli's sons came come with it. And then they're killed because the, the Philistines beat the Israelites. The, uh, so when Eli hears of the results of the battle, he's told not only did his sons die, but the Ark of the Covenant was taken. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember from uh, the Pentateuch that we read through, they contained the it's it's the presence of God in essence what the Ark of the Covenant represented. Whenever yeah. the whenever the Ark of the Covenant was somewhere, that that's where the presence of God showed up. Uh, and so I lo- I love I love the next couple chapters about this um, in chapters five and six because it, it just makes me laugh. Um, but Eli, when he hears about the results of the battle that his sons had died, but then he heard that the Ark of the Covenant. And I don't know if I just said this or not, but he he fell and died. He fell over and died. Yeah, because he heard that the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Um, and so the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant back to their main city. They bring him into their temple, um, and and it does it does a number. And I'm going to read this in chapter five, verses one through twelve. Uh, it says this: It says after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to a statue. Now Dagon, Dagon is their god, is the god that they worship, their primary god. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant, put it in the temple with their god. It says, when the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Ha! Huh. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Ha! <laughs> this time, Dagon's head and both his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. That is why still today, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in and Ashdod do not step on the th- on Dagon's threshold. In other words, this ark is put in this temple and the false image or the image of their false god it falls twice. One with his face before the ark, which is in essence bowing down in worship, in essence the sovereignty and power of the Almighty. And then the second time they put him back in his place, the second time he not only has fallen down, but his head and his hands are off. Um, and it's it's literally defeated. Like I'm the, the Almighty is the one who conquered him. I like to imagine that God had a lot of fun with that. Oh, I think <laughs> like so he's too. Just like 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 as soon as they leave, he's like <laughs> and just tips it yep. over. Oh, that's good. Stuff. Not even like just even like and then falls over. Anyways, um, so, so that so they don't step on the threshold. They, there's a significant moment. Uh, verse six says the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory, and inflicted them with tumors. Continues on in verse seven, when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God, Dagon. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and asked, what should we do with the ark of Israel's God? The ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the ark of Israel's God. After they moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The people of Gath then sent the Ark of, the, of God to, to Ekron. But when it got there, the Ekronites cried out, they're moving the Ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. So the Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together. They said, send the Ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us or our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing him. And this says this in verse 12, which I just thought is a perfect exclamation point. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Uh, so we see this incredible moment that I think is 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 comic and, and, and humorous, but at the same time, a little bit heavy. Like, man, the, okay, I'm going to fear the Lord a little bit more than I no- normally do. Because of how it's just an Ark of the Covenant, but it just it, it showed his power and his, his might in the midst of that. Well, you think you think at some point, like at 
wouldn't one of the priests be like, you know, maybe, maybe we should try worshiping Yahweh a little bit. Like, you know, like it's not, it's not just that like, oh man, all these bad things are happening. We better move it out of here. Like, no, it's, he's clearly demonstrating that Dagon is pretty much nothing. Yep. Like maybe, you know, yep. I, I don't know. You, you, you maybe, think so. Maybe but. you should. I, I also love that because Dagon, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't think the Israelites are really ever tempted to worship Dagon. No. Yeah. So he's kind of, you know, this, I don't know if there yeah. ever was a temptation, but if there was, this kind of puts Very it to small, rest. if anything, yeah. Yep. Uh, so that, I mean, that that takes us to chapter seven, uh, end of chapter five into chapter seven. Then we see for the first time, Samuel, if you notice, it, you're going to notice as you read, Samuel kind of disappears for a moment. Um, it's almost indicative of, of like God removing um, his hand of provision and protection for his people in this moment where there's no longer a judge present, there's no longer a representative present. And then finally we see in chapter seven, verse three, we see Samuel reintroduced. Um, and then it signals in this moment, a positive change for Israel. The passage establishes the background for Samuel's career as prophet, priest, and judge. Um, so we'll see that in chapter seven. And then we see in chapter eight, we see this movement from Samuel as the prophet leading God's people, as the judge leading God's people to the people's desire to move to a monarchy. Um, before the interesting thing here, and I think we've talked about it in previous podcasts before, but the idea that Samuel's sons were not righteous like their father. Uh, so Israel makes this request, uh, that Samuel, who's getting up and up, up there in age to appoint a King to rule over them. Um, and it, and at the end of the day, the long and the short of it is God grant, grants their request. Um, and, but what this request is actually ultimately showing is they're rejecting God's rule as king over them as a nation. Yep. Um, and in essence, the, the the desire and the justification for requesting this is we want it to be like all the other people, all the other nations that are ruled by a king. And so so God's people make this demand. God grants this request. Uh, and then he prompts Samuel to to warn them with what the is what will happen when there's a king ruling over them. And the people blatantly say, nope, we don't care about that. We want a king. Uh, and so then we see in chapter nine, the introduction of Saul who's the first human king of Israel. Uh, his reign is presented with a sense of foreboding, which hints at an, uh, at an ineptness and a spiritual ignorance, um, and a, that the nation will get exactly what he asks for. So we see that in chapter, yeah. chapter 9. Hey, he's a Benjamite, which is one of the few remaining from the, like, a very small tribe now because they almost got uh, extinct. They almost became extinct from the end of Judges. Uh, but he's a Benjamite, but he said he stood, foot in, he stood head and shoulders above the rest of all the other people. He was high in stature. Um, but he was inept and he was spiritually ignorant. Um, and so what we see in chapter 10, we see the rest of his, his, his kingship. We see what plays out. Chapter 11 is a high point. We'll get to that in a moment. But chapter 10, we see Saul head home, heads home after spending time with Samuel. He's been anointed king at this point. And he was told by Samuel what will happen on his account, on his, on his way home. There's a prophetic word there that Samuel gives him. It actually comes to fruition. Um, and, and it's kind of a cool moment of affirmation. This happened. Uh, I'm going to be king. And then finally, we see in, in verse 17, we see uh, that Saul is going to reveal kind of his true self. When Samuel finally gets a point, he gathers the people and celebrates the announcement of of the king that they all that they all wanted and in, 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 that they all asked for is this kingship. And so we see in chapter seven, chapter 10, verse 17 it says this, and this is going to reveal kind of how Saul is. This is kind of who Saul is. This is who's now their king. It says Saul, Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the Israelites said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said, I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Side note, this isn't a good way to start the conversation. 
especially when they're getting ready to highlight uh, a king, a human king in place. And he says this in verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saved you from all your troubles and afflictions. You have said to him, you must set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Samuel had all the tribes come forward and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. So there's this this kind of this this dramatic, not like dramatic in this in a negative tone, but this drama-induced revelation that whittles it down to the tribe of Benjamin. It whittles it down to the clan, the family, and then all of a sudden it says Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they were certain when they searched for him, they could not find him. This is revealing something about Saul. They again inquired of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, There he is, hidden among the supplies. Oh, the supplies. He's hiding behind everybody. Now, if I'm Saul, can I be honest with you for a second? And I hear the opening words of Samuel. Yeah, I'm not going to be too thrilled about stepping into kingship when it's literally a blatant rejection of God's kingship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes a little bit of sense. But it says that he's hiding among the supplies. They ran. They got him. We stood among the people. He stood a head taller than everyone else. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people home. Saul also went home to Gibeah, and, and the brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift, but Saul said nothing. So we see this picture of Saul once he's announced. He's fearful. He's reluctant. He's a little incompetent. Um, and... And it's interesting that there's this ineptness about his ability to lead, except from chapter 11, which we then get to read and jump into. And it's this glorious, the one moment, the one glorious moment. Everyone deserves kingship. one moment. Yeah. that's And so that's why I chose to read this one. Um, I couldn't let it all be bad. Uh, but Samuel or Saul, uh, in chapter 11, we read this. Uh, this is Saul, Saul's one great moment. Nahash the Ammonite came up and laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Now, Gibeah is where Saul was going. Saul was, that's actually where Saul lived. Um, so he says, hey, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make one with you on this condition, that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all of, his, all of Israel. Okay. So in other words, I'm going to seed you. Uh, you want a treaty with me? Okay, I'll do that. But I get to gouge out every right eye from every man. See, I, I hear you. I see what you're saying. I don't know if we're quite going to be willing to do that. And so then the, the people of Jabesh said, well, don't do anything for, to us for seven days. The elders of Jabesh said to him, and let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we'll surrender to you. In other words, they, the, the, it was the Ammonites. Sorry, I just forgot it. Nahash. Okay, I'll give you seven days. I'll give you a week and then I'm going to destroy you. So just then when that happened, he said, the messenger sent out from Gibeah, Saul's hometown, told the terms of the people and all, everybody wept aloud. And just as then that was happening, Saul came, was coming in from the field behind his oxen. What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired. And they repeated to him the words of, of the men from Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him and his anger burned furiously. It's indicative of the book of Judges. The judge, when yep. the Holy Spirit came upon someone to, to vindicate his people, we have this moment where the, the Spirit of God came upon Saul and his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen. Well, it kind of it reminds me a little bit of Jephthah, where yeah. God didn't necessarily pick them from the beginning. The people kind of chose him. But then when the moment came, God empowered he Jephthah to do what he needed to do. God is empowering Saul to do what he needs to do. As and it's well. a picture of, of God's grace. And it's a picture of God's mercy in the midst of rejection. Yeah. Which is pretty powerful too. 
So it says he took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers, who said, this is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united. So Saul was used by God to unite his people, to therefore fight and, and deliver his people. So we see this, that Saul counted them at Bezek. There were about 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who would come, tell this to the men of Jabesh Gilead, deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh and they rejoiced. Then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, tomorrow we will come out and you can do whatever you want to us. In other words, hey, we're going to mess with you. Yeah, we'll surrender. Just wait. The next day, Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch, they invited the camp, slaughtered them until the heat of the day. And there were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. Uh, so we see this incredible moment in Saul, in Saul's life. Like he he was used by God to bring deliverance to his people. And it's, it's, it's this moment where everyone rallies to King Saul and aligns their allegiance to him. And then those who... Uh, if you remember from the previous chapter, you see this moment where people didn't want to trust him and didn't want to give him a gift. The people who align their life to so Saul say, hey, we need to kill those who weren't who weren't uh, supporting you. And Saul said, no, leave him alone. Um, and so you have this incredible moment in chapter 11 of Saul's kingship. Uh, you see chapter 12, you see Samuel is then back and he's actually at odds with the people of God because they are turning to their king and ignoring the voice of the Lord. Uh, Samuel defends his ministry to the people and then calls them again to repentance. He leads the nation to the, in, into renewing its commitment to God. It's a very high moment uh, for God's people. And at the close of this chapter, Saul and the Israel are poised to reap God's blessings. Uh, and then there's a verse at the end of chapter 12 that I want to read, just one verse. And it, it says this, that it hints at what awaits Israel. And so in verse 25 of chapter 12, it says this, However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. It's almost as if Samuel knew something was up. Mm. Something was happening. We see at the end of the reading of Samuel this week, this very big section where God rejects Saul as king. And it's one of the, it's, it's a heartbreaking moment because Saul does two things that is that leads to God's rejection of him. Uh, even though he starts off kind of timid and scared, he has this incredible moment, which I would think in that moment too, Saul's like, okay, I can do this. God has God does affirm, like God is going to use me. I'm going to lead. And he does great in organizing the, the troops for battle and, and doing this significant thing. But then he hits this moment where he disobeys Samuel's instruction. You'll see that in chapter 13. And then you'll also see he interrupts an effort to seek God's counsel and instead relies on his own oath. He makes a foolish oath, doesn't seek the counsel of the Lord, and that he's then held in, in, in his own arrogance and, and lack of humility, he sticks to it rather than seeking what God would want them to do. And then it shows that God rejects Saul as king. And then we this is where the story for many of us picks up and we begin to reflect on the story of David, where we're introduced to the character of David in the coming week. And the next week we'll be introduced, we'll read more about it. But there are some highlights in this section too. Even though God was rejecting Saul, we actually are introduced to Jonathan, Saul's son who in, in spite of his father's leadership, he leads in righteousness and humility. He leads in a manner that is, is God-fearing in the midst of it. We see this brilliant moment with Jonathan and his armor bearer going up and taking care and defeating a, a large garrison of, of Philistine troops in chapter 14. Um, and there, there's this moment in chapter 15 as we read it where we see one final act of disobedient, where, disobedience where Saul fails to destroy the Amalekites. And he has a final confrontation with Saul, Sam, Samuel, sorry. Uh, and it leads to this utter rejection where Samuel then leaves and is led by God to go to Obed's house. 
uh, Obed's son's house, Jesse, who then is the son of, who has a son, David, who we will learn about more next week and being alluded to King. So, uh, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a low, it's a slow start. It's a, a high moment and then a, a tragic fall for King Saul. Which is actually the narrative of tragedy where things start bad, they get good and they, they go bad. Hey, we're all learning something new this week. And you see, we so, would we would know this if we cared more about story structure. Well, we're just not as good as you have. That's not how that Anyways, works. so that's 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 the first part of Samuel that we're going to read uh, this week. So it's there's a ton of narrative. It's a ton of story, uh, but it's 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 unfortunate the way it all plays out sometimes. It's true. Sometimes that's a weird way to end the sentence. But. Well, listeners, we need a little bit of a pick-me-up after that. So, yeah, so let's, let's read some more. Let's get to one of the few letters written by Paul where he's not really mad about something. So this is the book of Philippians, uh, which is written to the church at Philippi. Um, yeah, like I said, it's rare among the Pauline epistles because he's not really correcting anything. There's a little bit that happens towards the end, but very much it's, it's kind of just a, like, hey, thanks for checking in on me. You guys are awesome. Love you guys. So that's, that's, I mean, basically you can kind of sum up the letter there. Uh, the Philippian church seems to have heard that Paul was having a tough time. And so Paul writes this letter to reassure them is kind of what we can guess is the context of what's going on here. Uh, Paul probably wrote this while in prison in Rome in the early sixties, or it could be during an Ephesian imprisonment during the mid fifties. Um, we're never told that Paul was put in prison in Ephesus. But when we read the stories about what happened there, it's not exactly a stretch to say that maybe he spent some time in prison. Um, both have their merits, but I kind of like the the Ephesian theory a little bit more um, just because – so there's there's just two, two weird things that happen in there. In the letter to the Philippians, he says he wants to go to Colossae, whereas in other letters that we know were written while he was in Rome, he says he wants to go to Spain. Those are in opposite directions. So it'd be really weird to go to Colossae and then, you know, kind of go over land to Spain. Uh, and then the second one would be, it could explain why Timothy is there. Cause Timothy is, he's kind of a big deal with like the early church fathers. Like he's the leader of the church of Ephesus. And so it would be kind of interesting if he left Rome and stayed with Paul for a long time. Um, or it might, it might make an easier way to say it that he was actually in Ephesus. And so because he was in the city that Timothy was pastoring and he was able to visit with Paul all the time because Timothy's listed as the co-author of this. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, when it's introduced, it's not just Paul, it's Paul and Timothy. So they kind of which is kind of also kind of fun to think about. Yep. So maybe there's some things in here that are that Timothy wrote. Maybe they banter back and forth like you and I do. Ooh, a little banter. Everyone loves banter. Anyway, so chapter one sees Paul greet the church at Philippi and remind them of how thankful he is for their ministry. Uh, and we also see just an incredible picture of how he views his circumstances. And it, this is one of the things I think is most inspiring about Paul. And so this is in chapter one, starting in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been confident, become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, but sincerely, but uh, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and that I rejoice to live as Christ, yes, 
and I will rejoice. So I love that Paul's in prison, but what's the, what's the number one thing he's thinking of is the gospel being proclaimed. And so he's talking about how he has been encouraging like the guards, the guards who are coming and interacting with him. He's like, hey, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Let me tell you about this guy. Um, and then he even talks about how he's hearing other people preaching Jesus and some don't have great motives, some have great motives, but he's like, you know, honestly, as long as they're hearing the gospel, great by me. I just, I just want as many people as possible to hear the good news of Christ, which is just a really inspiring thing about Paul. I, I love, um, I think Paul has some character flaws that kind of flare what? up once in a while. I know like as if, as if that's not true of every human character in the Bible, but, um, that's, I think that's just the most admirable thing about Paul mm-hmm. is that he is just obsessed yeah, with as many people, getting as many people to know Jesus as he can before he dies. Uh, a major theme of this whole letter is that Paul is willing to sacrifice everything to continue the ministry of Christ. This is where we get the famous refrain that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or in other words, um, as long as I live, I'm going to continue Christ's work. And then when it's over and I go home, that's going to be even better than what I'm doing here. So you see Paul have that eternal perspective, which yeah. as Christians is so important for us to have. Uh, in chapter two, Paul reminds the church how that they are how they are to live out the example of Christ, so namely living in unity and hum- humility, which are two major themes in Paul's letters. Uh, and then this, how this can add to our Christian witness. So this is in chapter two. It says, "Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or." disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So yeah, I just love this whole idea of and we talked about this. I can't remember what the last letter we did where we talked about this theme, but the idea that Paul is very concerned with how the church looks to outsiders as well. And you see so much of Paul doesn't want, again, Paul's main obsession is how can I get the most people to know who Jesus is? He doesn't want anything to come out of the church that would actually impede people accepting Christ impede or make Christ look less glorious than he actually is. And so that's a lot, a lot of the letters are, that's what they're correcting is small things, but Paul realizes that they can turn into big issues. Yeah. Um, at the end of chapter two, Paul also reminds the reader of who he is with. So Timothy being the pastor of the church in Ephesus and Epaph- or Epaphroditus who carried the letter to Philippi. So we don't know much about Epaphroditus, but hey, you got the letter to Philippi. Well so we know, we know he accomplished that. Uh, in chapter three, Paul continues to warn the Philippians of one of the dangerous heresies of the day. So this is circumcision being necessary for salvation, uh, which is, it's kind of an interesting, it's interesting in the fact that this is really not a struggle today. So yeah. mo- like most Christians aren't like, hey, you circumcised? Because if not, you know, you're going to hell. straight to hell with you. Um, but I do think what it gets at is something that's really important for us to always remember. And that is, do we let past traditions define Jesus for us today? And I think that's it's almost a resetting that has to be done every generation where you think through the lens of, okay, what are things that I believe, not because they're in the Bible, yeah. but because that's just the way I grew up? Um, and are those things a stumbling block? So if, you know, for a Jew, you grow up, you're circumcised on the eighth day, your children are all circumcised, on, or your, your sons are all circumcised on the eighth day. Um, and so it's, it's this 
and, it, and this has been going on for thousands of years. This yeah. is so I, I understand completely how they're in this tradition mode. But now what they're doing is they're letting this tradition, which is now no longer holding on God's people, they're letting that be a stumbling block to the to the Greeks who are being introduced to Jesus. And so I think it's a good reflection point of where in our lives do we let things that aren't actually biblical be a stumbling block to those outside of Christ. So anyway, that one's that one's for free. Uh, and so finally, at the end of the chapter, he offers one final word of encouragement. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told uh, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus. Their end is destruction. Their God is in their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And it is sad to think that even in the church at Philippi, which is by all accounts doing really great, um, I think the only one is the probably the church in Macedonia is probably the one because they don't they don't get any letters. They're just like Paul's like, yeah, you guys are good. Yeah, they're they're fine. Um, but yeah, you you do see that this this pattern of Paul will plant a church and all all of the apostles they'll plant churches and then they'll very shortly afterward have to correct false theology that's coming in and even people who are coming in with poor motives who are trying to lead people astray. Um, and it, it is it is just a sad thing to look at. And Paul says he's writing it with tears that he's thinking of these people who um, he led to the Lord yeah. or he shared the gospel with, and now they've completely gone and they're they're actively working against Christ. And it is a really a really saddening thing for Paul to to reflect on. Uh, finally, the final chapters of Paul's letters they're always some of my favorites just because there, there's not a ton of like you know, groundbreaking, powerful theology there. But the reminder that these are real letters. Like yeah. this, this is a letter written by a man uh, to a specific group of people. So he encourages two people named uh, Euodia and Synth... Oh my goodness. Syntyche. Syntyche? That's a great one. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> so so he, he tells them, hey, bury the hatchet. So, you know, whatever this conflict's been going on, you know, Come on, guys, take care of it. Or gals. I don't, I'm not sure which one's which. Uh, and he reminds them to always rejoice in the Lord, which given what the church was facing back then hits differently. So again, I think it's easy for us to say rejoice in the Lord because our, our lives are pretty great. Um, the most that we experience as far as persecution goes is maybe some people make fun of us on the internet. Um, <laughs> and maybe, maybe there's a few other things that are worse. But yeah, we're if we brought our persecution problems in the modern American church to like a first century uh, Greek church or un- under Roman rule, they'd be like, what are you talking about? That's not that bad. Of course you get made fun of, but they're facing active persecution. And remember, Paul is writing this in prison. He is also facing active persecution and he encourages them to rejoice in the Lord, which I think is great. And then finally, the last words are him thanking the Philippians for their generosity and their faithfulness. So well done, Philippians. Yeah. It's one of those things where on the other side of eternity, I'm excited. I want to meet some people from the church of Philippi and Macedonia. I think those guys, like, I just want to I want to get to know some of them and just kind of hear their stories. It's 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 a cool idea. 
All right, well, listener, before we wrap it up, we did have a question come in. We actually had a few questions come in this week, so we're, I'm excited that over the next couple of weeks we're going to be answering those. Um, this week, though, it says, uh, per Judges 9, Abimelech was the self-appointed king. Does that make him actually the first king of Israel and not Saul? Uh, in the English Standard Version, verse 6 says that he was made king, and then verse 22 said he ruled over all of Israel for three years. Okay, point of order. That's not what the, the questioner wrote, and he said an Evans Standard Version. That's true. Because that's what I jokingly call it, the English Standard Version. So, if, if you're new to the podcast, I'm an ESV man, and, and Aaron's a CSB man. So, so I read the Christian Standard Bible, Evan reads the English Standard Version. Both are great translations. Yes, they are. Uh, so not, One is not better than the other. They're actually both very accurate. They just read a little differently. Yeah, it just comes it's down to It's a matter preference. of preference. Hey, jinx. Almost. All right. So this, I, I, I really appreciate this question because it gave me the opportunity to bust out my concordance, which I love doing. Uh, so the Hebrew word for rule here is the only time it's used in this context. So this was actually, I think, I think it was a note in the ESV study Bible that kind of got me onto this, but the, the only time that this word rule is used in all of the old Testament in this context is the book of judges. So nowhere else when it describes a king ruling or anything like that, it does not use this word, which I thought was really interesting. So it, that, that alone tells you the way that Abimelech is viewed versus the way that Saul and the future kings yes, of Israel and Judah very, are viewed. Very accurate. Very differently. Uh, so the word is sarar. So, I mean, if you want to know. It's Gethsemane? No, yeah, it's S-A-R-A-R. Uh, and then it carries with it the idea of prince or lord, not a king. So it kind of... it. It's an underleader, I guess, is the way yeah, to put it's it. It's a lord of a land versus the king of a land. That's, right. I mean, go back to medieval times. That's there you go. That's the difference. A uh, we'll call it an earl as opposed to a an king. Earl or a, or a count. What I, I learned. A baron. A, I learned a new fun one the other day that was um, Marquess, which I thought, I which no looks idea. like it should be Marcus, but it's it's a it's a count of a border territory. You got oh, your own special. Look at that. You got your own special. Um, yeah, you got your own special thing, which is why in Lord of the Rings. The Rohan, they're the lords of the mark because it's a border territory between the two countries. So there you go. Anyway, so this is when I wish you could see fun, fun facts. Uh, so, well, yeah. So while he ruled over Israel in part, he did not rule over all of Israel. So it's because, and then we know this because, right, Dan comes in and they do their whole thing. Yeah. Um, and so, and then he's ruling specifically in Shechem. So it's a civil war that kind of happens, I guess, if you want to view Israel as a whole country at this point. So clearly he does not rule over all of Israel like Saul does. Saul is the first king to rule over the 12 tribes. And moving forward, obviously... Not only David and Solomon also roll over the, I guess Rehoboam for a little bit, but then after that it's separated. But Abimelech is not really a king. I don't think it's proper to call him the king of Israel. He's really the king of Shechem yeah. for a little bit. Yeah. And uh, he may have claimed kingship over all Israel, which is debatable, but maybe he kind of did that. But uh, practically this was certainly not true. So I would yep. say that Abimelech, maybe he wanted to be, but I don't think it would be... I don't think we need to worry about him being technically the first king of Israel. Maybe yeah. you could say that he's the first guy with a title of king. Yeah, he might have led. He might Israel. have been a leader, uh, but he wasn't the king. Yeah. So, and again, Abimelech, not a great guy. So, you know, well, I don't, we don't need It's it. better that way. I mean, Saul's not the best guy either, but Saul's better than Abimelech. That guy was just a real turd of a leader. All right. Well... On that note, listener, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Um, as a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There is a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.